It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. I'm your host, Ben Carnes, and I'm joined this morning uh, by a rather diverse panel of uh, guests, uh, all of whom work in the federal IT space in some capacity. Uh, my first guest is Taja Chapelet-Lanier, who's a technology reporter at FedScooped, uh, and she covers the uh, federal IT space for them on a daily basis and previously worked for Technically DC uh, as well as NPR and USA Today. Taja, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, my second guest in studio with me is Dave Winogren, and Dave is a federal technology leader with a focus on government, IT modernization, and transformation. He served in numerous high-profile roles across DOD and the federal government uh, with a career that spans a, a few decades, I believe. And he's also a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration, uh, as well as a, a laundry list of other things I have here that <laughs> would take quite a while to read off. So Dave, uh, thanks for being here in studio with us. And uh, I'm also joined uh, on the phone by Dr. Jeff Nichols, uh, uh, who is the Associate Laboratory Director for Oak Ridge National Laboratory's Compu uh, Computing and Computational Sciences Division. Uh, Dr. Nichols, are you there with us? Yes, I am. And uh, Dr. Nichols' team um, is responsible for uh, an exciting project that we'll get into here in just a couple of minutes. Um, I wanted to turn first to Dave Wintergren. Uh, you, you have uh, a long career in the federal technology space, and you've been working at it for quite a while. Um, it, what, is, what does that look like right now? There are a lot of moving pieces with the president's management agenda. And, and what is kind of the, uh, the, the general sense? Um, it, it seems like there's sort of a, a – uh, you have the, you know, Modernization at the IRS, where we've been talking for decades, it seems like, about updating the, the individual master file or these kind of, uh, to use your word, North Star type issue areas. To what extent right now is it you know, modernization of these old legacy type systems? And to what extent is it uh, working towards artificial intelligence and blockchain and some of these these new things? Yeah. Well, the pace of technology change is just so dramatic, and there are so many opportunities to try new and bold things. But I think many federal agencies still suffer from the fact that uh, they're sitting on aging legacy infrastructure and systems. So the IT modernization imperative, I think, is part of the challenge that's keeping organizations from taking advantage of bold new plays like AI and blockchain and digital and data and stuff. And so, you know, if you look at federal agencies, they tend to spend 75 to 80 percent of their IT budgets still sustaining an aging legacy base that not only sort of makes it very difficult to adapt new digital web-based mobile solutions, but also introduce huge cybersecurity vulnerabilities. So, so clearly priority number one for federal agencies right now is IT modernization along with cybersecurity. And there's this continuum. You see a lot of talk about moving to the cloud, which is clearly an important play mm -hmm. in, in 
kind of slow in adoption, but is now making progress. But but really, there's so much more, and maybe we can talk about that as mm-hmm. the hour goes on, that it's not just the movement of your infrastructure to the cloud, but it's this looking at your thousands of legacy systems and which ones do you want to retire and which ones do you want to replace and which ones do you want to refresh and how can you embrace some of these new technologies like process robotics and things like that? How can you get yourself out of the business that isn't your core and how can you look at how you can use the commercial sector or other shared services providers to help move you to a more modern infrastructure? Sure, and I guess one of the one of the kind of recurring million dollar questions is in order to avoid having this happen again in 20 years, you know, making sure that the decisions you're making right now are, are communicative with your other decisions, you know, that agencies are communicating uh, communicating with one another. And we touched a little bit on uh, the president's management agenda. There are also a couple of executive orders um, that recently came out. And just in general, there's been a lot of talk from the administration about uh, IT modernization. And Taja, you, you cover this on a daily basis for uh, FedScoop. Uh, your recent piece, um, you, you highlight three kind of success stories with the Technology Modernization Fund. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? And just in general, is, uh, is your sense that there is sufficient momentum right now to actually make progress on IT modernization beyond just chipping away at the edges on you know, a kind of obscure issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that the Technology Modernization Fund is a really interesting component of the current administration's focus on IT modernization. Um, It started with the MGT Act, which was a long time in the making, but finally signed in December 2017. Um, And that created two things. It created the Technology Modernization Fund, which is a centralized fund um, for IT modernization projects that agencies can apply to um, and and be granted a loan um, that they have to pay back for, for this discrete project. Uh, It also created for agencies the ability to build their own working capital funds where they sort of parlay um, IT funds that they receive into future IT modernization projects, um, which is also exciting. But the the Technology Modernization Fund uh, has a board of seven IT, federal IT leaders who were convened in March and then they started accepting applications from agencies. Um, They finally made their decision, or their first decision. Um, This fund is, at the moment, it has $100 million. They decided to give out in the first round $45 million of that to three different agencies, um, the Department of Energy, the Department of Agriculture, and the Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, all three of which are working on big, exciting IT modernization projects. so the and, awards, I mean, it includes uh, improvements to farmers.gov and I mean, yes. fairly uh, large kind of banner type uh, type improvements yeah. are why they won the awards. And I actually want to, uh, a bit of an awkward segue, but I, I do want to bring in Dr. Jeff Nichols here because I know he can only join us uh, for the beginning of the show. And just on the subject of sort of federal government successes, um, it, it's kind of long been my sense, and I think Taja, before we were on the air, uh, and Dave as well, we were discussing the fact that there's so many of these sort of federal success stories out there that, that don't get a lot of airtime. And uh, what has been happening at Oak Ridge National Laboratory is is pretty incredible. Um, so just for a little bit of context for anybody listening, uh, the lab that Dr. Nichols is a part of uh, is responsible for Titan, which is the supercomputer that I believe when it was introduced was the most powerful supercomputer in the world. Is that correct, Dr. Nichols? Yeah, that's correct. So um, actually, we went on uh, uh, we went online in 2012, and we were the world's most powerful supercomputer. Um, yeah, that's measured uh, by uh, 
performance of a of a matrix multiply, if you will. It's called high performance Lin packet, but it's actually a measure of a of a particular kernel that's important when we solve uh, problems uh, in science where we we solve partial differential equations and and we do lots and lots of uh, adds and multiplies and and that's a particular measure and so we were the number one machine in the top 500 back in 2012 and and we've been uh, the U.S. as the nation's uh, most powerful supercomputer that that computer called Titan has been the most powerful supercomputer for our nation uh, since 2012 and so uh, we've been doing uh, science uh, um, as a national lab and and the way that the Supercomputers are actually um, allocated by uh, by the federal government, by the Department of Energy. In this case, is that uh, um, basically their proposal process and allocations are granted based on uh, the type of science that's uh, being proposed, as well as the need for something as powerful as uh, Titan. So, so Titan has been uh, capable of uh, 27 quadrillion adds or multiplies per second uh, for the last five years, and and we've used it for a lot of uh, exciting uh, science. But of course. Technology like Titan is um, um, it gets refreshed about every three or four years, so it's uh, it's getting old uh, in computer uh, time. Uh, and so, like dogs and cats, you know, uh, they're on they're on a different time scale than humans. And uh, computers have a, a lifespan of about oh uh, four or five years, three, four, five years. And then, like your cell phone, they get uh, retired and uh, get replaced by something new. And so that's the exciting moment that we're in right now is that we're replacing Titan with and- a new supercomputer called Summit. And we're coming up on our first break. That gives us a good stopping point because when we come back, we'll hear uh, a little bit about Summit, which was just officially uh, introduced or or publicly unveiled, I believe, by the Department of Energy and Oak Ridge National Laboratory last week. Uh, So when we get back, we'll uh, dive into that a little bit more here on Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500. Uh, so I'm joined uh, here in studio by Taja Chapelet-Lanier, who's a technology reporter at FedScoop, and Dave Wintergren. I believe I got your title wrong, Dave. You're the managing director for federal technology at Deloitte. Is that correct? And then Dr. Uh, Jeff Nichols, who's a so- associate laboratory director for the Oak Ridge National Laboratory's Computing and Computational Sciences Department. And just before the break, we were talking to Dr. Nichols uh, about the team's work on Titan, which was the uh, most powerful supercomputer back in 2013. And since then, uh, the team has been hard at work on Summit, which they just introduced uh, last week. And can you tell us a little bit uh, about that accomplishment, Dr. Nichols? Sure. So the the interesting, I'll just try to contrast that with uh, what we had in Summit for the past half dozen years. And and uh, whereas uh, Titan was capable of 27 quadrillion ads or multiplies per second, uh, Summit is going to come online with the ability to do 200 quadrillion ads or multiplies per second. The big measure here is that um, uh, these these particular computers are very power hungry. Not, when I mean power hungry, I mean actually electric electric power. Mm-hmm. So uh, whereas uh, Titan was consuming on the order of nine megawatts of power. Uh, Summit's going to consume on the order of 13 megawatts of power, and so 
what we're seeing is uh, a significant uh, opportunity to use a, almost a factor of 10 times more compute capability while holding the power consumption actually fairly flat. The other important thing to, uh, to recognize is that because of the big data um, and artificial intelligence uh, 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 movement over the past half dozen years, um, Summit has capabilities on the AI side which are uh, even more impressive than what it can do on the ad and the, you know the double precision adds and multiplies uh, side. So it turns out that uh, this particular supercomputer is built by IBM that has mm-hmm. IBM Power 9 processors in it and it's got uh, NVIDIA GPU processors in it and um, and then this revolution of the GPU processor called the Volta this processor is actually uh, built to do not only the kind of uh, science calculations that we're used to doing, but it's also in, in, it's also been prepared to do the, the kind of AI calculations, if you will. Uh, so it has the ability to do mixed precision. So it can actually do calculations in, in a variety of precisions where it can use 16-bit, 32-bit, 64-bit precision. Um, if you're actually using... 16-bit precision, which is the type of precision that you use when you do AI and you do machine learning or deep learning and the training parts of that calculation, you can actually get three quintillion um, adds or multiplies of this kind of low precision uh, quality uh, in order to do AI. So it's really an exascale computer uh, capable of doing AI uh, um, at the exascale. So that's, that's really exciting. So that means that uh, being able to handle new scientific er- areas that we hadn't been thinking of before uh, with with Titan, we can now do with with Summit. I think one of the areas when when I uh, talk to people about this, uh, pe- their eyes kind of glaze over when you start talking about uh, petaflops and uh, exascale computing systems and that sort of thing. Uh, I know that um, you know this one is this Summit is is two, more than two times uh, power uh, more powerful than I believe the previous leader, which was uh, in China. Um, yeah. And that seems to get a lot of airtime, sort of that sheer uh, horsepower uh, measurement, because I guess, you know, w- w- with supercomputers that uh, goes with the territory. I-, I wonder, though, if you can give sort of a, a layman's perspective of just the kind of, uh, of power that we're dealing with, because I know that, you know, if, if you're talking about a, a home desktop, you might be talking about uh, it, it kind of like megabytes, gigabytes in the giga range, but yeah. you have, you have 4,000 some odd servers that make up the supercomputer, so just as far as orders of magnitude, it's, it's almost a little bit difficult to comprehend, it seems like. Right. So you think about it as a, a, a computer that's about the size of two tennis courts that's capable of doing the kind of calculations you could do if you could combine, you know, two million or three million laptops or desktop sure. computers together, uh, bundle them together, and apply that power um, to a given uh, calculation. That's that's a kind of the the order of magnitude. These, uh, the other thing to realize, I mentioned it previously about uh, the amount of power consumption they have. That's also a measure. You know, the Chinese uh, computer um, that was at uh, about half the size or half the capability of Summit uh, was consuming 24 megawatts of power, which is about twice the amount of power that Summit's going to consume. So being able to get the kind of performance uh, uh, within these supercomputers, without breaking the bank uh, in power consumption, although you, some people might think that that that's breaking the bank. Mm-hmm. You know, a megawatt of power would probably power up about 600 to 700 homes, and wow. so you know these computers will consume uh, uh, the power that you would need for a, a small city. That's it's incredible. I wonder. You you mentioned you know there, there's sort of this competitive 
aspect uh, to the supercomputing, at least from, uh, I guess, from a media perspective. But does that carry over at all to the teams? Is there uh, any relationship or, or sort of uh, communication at all between the teams in, in Denmark oh, sure. and China? Sure, there is. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is an international contact sport. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in the top 500 right now, uh, uh, before the new release uh, this month, actually, at the end of this month, you know, China has the number one machine and the number two machine. And uh, the number three machine, I think, is uh, uh, a machine in Switzerland uh, at, at the CSCS site. And then the fourth most powerful machine is in, in Japan. And then Titan, uh, the, our nation's most powerful computer, is right now ranked fifth. You know, those numbers, those things will change around, but you've got to realize that, you know, these teams are working on these things, and the turnaround time for these things are, you know, they'll flip-flop. You know, every six months to 12 months, there'll be a new top performer. And China's held the top spot now for a few years, and it's time for the, uh, the U.S. to reclaim its uh, leadership here. And, and this is something that we hope Summit will uh, regain at the end of this month. So, it's not only our supercomputer, but the one at uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab also should be jumping up into the top five uh, supercomputers in the world. And, and so this, these are really powerful instruments for not only doing new science, uh, but doing science that keeps our country at a, at a competitive advantage and allows us to do things, uh, uh, creating an economic advantage, if you will, uh, for the nation as well as national security. So there's lots of applications where supercomputers can uh, be applied. And I've seen some some references in, in a couple of the stories uh, about Summit to some of the uh, the potential challenges and problems that you're going to be throwing at it. Can you give some sense of, of the types of things that, that you're using all of this computational power to attempt to answer? Sure. So with Titan, we, we did much of the traditional kind of uh, science that you would do as, you know, in terms of Physicists like to write down equations and solve, uh, you know, first principle type equations, solve partial differential equations. And and so with Titan, we would do things in material sciences, you know, understanding structural new materials, uh, their their characteristics, understand how to create new biofuels from biomass. We we actually have been working with the nuclear uh, uh, energy house where we we actually created a virtual nuclear reactor uh, called Vera. We we do work uh, uh, supporting the the fusion reactor in Kardash, France, under, underneath ITER, and uh, do things in astrophysics and lots of different kind of science applications. Uh, Summit will continue to be applied against those types of science problems that are important to uh, the mission of the Department of Energy, but it will also be that, then uh, being able to create models from data. We, we typically create models from equations. But the field of AI allows us to use the data around us in vast quantities and create models from the data. And here you'll start to see models that are uh, being created, just like the models that are created for you to use in your driverless cars. We're going to create models uh, that we will, uh, from the data that we get from our spallation neutron source and the neutron imaging, we'll create models from the kind of uh, microscopy data we get out of our electron microscopes. We'll create models from uh, the kind of genomics data or the uh, combination of genomics data and medical records that allow us to then uh, inquire the, into these models to help you know, change the way that we do um, uh, preventative medicine. There's all kinds of things that we're going to, going to see on Summit that we haven't seen 
with any prior computer in the past because of its capabilities in artificial intelligence. And I want to uh, sort of transition a little bit because uh, on, on previous shows, um, I spoke to uh, Taja's uh, colleague, Carton Cordell, over at FedScoop, and we talked a little bit about uh, quantum computing. And I know that's sort of on the fringes of applicability uh, and realism at this point in the federal IT space, but you, you begin to see it crop up uh, when you hear mention of AI and blockchain and some of these other uh, emergent technologies. And there seems to be, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, there seems to be a, a lot of question marks about quantum computing, even on the very fundamental levels. When I talk to people, they don't seem to have a good idea of, of what a quantum computer even looks like or, or <laughs> what need it, it, it fills. And I know that the lab uh, had released uh, another accomplishment where it was the first to successfully simulate an atomic nucleus using a quantum computer, which is incredible. Um, I'm wondering if you can... Uh, orient us at all on on quantum computing just in general is it when it when the with the advent of quantum uh, quantum computing and as it becomes more realistic um is that something that's going to replace what your team is doing with these traditional supercomputers or is it coming alongside and solving different problems so our our view of uh quantum computing uh, is the same way that we would view any what we think of as accelerators accelerators mm -hmm. are those kinds of processors uh, that might help accelerate certain applications. And, and so, for example, in Titan and, again, in Summit, the accelerator in both of those uh, supercomputers are what we call graphical processing units. They came right. out of the gaming company, gaming mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. um, quantum computing, quantum uh, processors, we think of as, a, as a, another form of accelerators. And so we are investigating quantum uh, potential quantum uh, capabilities. We've got relationships with D-Wave, with IBM. Uh, uh, with um, uh, we're forming a relationship with Rigetti. Uh, we've talked to Intel. The, the the big deal here is that qubits, um, the fun underlying fundamental uh, things that allow you to do the processing, just like bits are part of, you know, uh, supercomputers and any processor. Qubits are quantum qubit are quantum bits, if you will, and. Qubits can be made out of a variety of things, things that are uh, things that can be quantized or where you can use quantum mechanics. You can make qubits from uh, photons or entangling photons or entangling um, electrons. You can do, um, there's many types of quantum computers out, out there. We tend to think of uh, super-cooled uh, quantum gates, for example, and that's quant uh, IBM is doing that. Uh, Intel would be doing something similar, but they would also have uh, things that are made from uh, silicon that would be quantum dots, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, ion traps is another way. Um, you can do topological qubits, which Microsoft does. I mean, there's a variety of ways to create qubits. The problem is is that you can't create them and keep them for very long before they deco what we call decohere. So right now, if you have on the order of 20 qubits, uh, you're doing pretty well, but these qubits don't live very long, and they don't allow you to do very much um, processing before they decohere or go away. Milliseconds, maybe. And so, uh, th right now, what the way that we feel, that we look at uh, quantum accelerators is that we say, okay, uh, we could use certain applications that uh, that can be laid over onto um, quantum uh, computers, things that are quantized, things that where you would use quantum mechanics to solve them they can actually um, align pretty well with quantum computers. And so things like what you just described is, uh, you know, I can understand how to create a Hamiltonian and solve a problem of a, of a nuclei, for example, a very small one, maybe hydrogen, 
atom or something you can uh, you can do with the kind of qubits that we have today um, but they don't last long, and they're not pure logical qubits, and so then you have to do error correcting and all these kinds of things. So the actual advent of quantum accelerators coming down the path, you know, is probably still a good 10 years away. But we're still looking at them today so that we understand how to use them in the future as quantum, as accelerators to solving the science problems that they're applicable to. And that's how we would treat it. They're, you know, they're just another, yet another way of doing accelerating our applications. And we, uh, we have about uh, one minute before we need to, uh, to take another break. I, I wanted to highlight, because um, I, I believe it's a, a significant accomplishment, I know that um, the Secretary of Energy, Perry, uh, had mentioned the fact, and, and you briefly alluded to the fact that this is the first uh, exascale system, which I believe in that in, in your world is uh, pretty pretty significant. Um, if, am I understanding correctly that that's, that is essentially the next sort of level of of computational achievement, right? That's yeah, sort of the that's next right. milestone. So, that's right. So we're, we are indeed already evaluating proposals from companies that want to work with us to field the, our 2021 machine, which will be an exascale machine. So this would be about five times, five to ten times more powerful than Summit. Um, what we announced actually on Friday was our ability to do um, uh, exascale at the AI level. In other words, doing calculations where you could apply what we think of as the lower precision 16-bit type calculations. And we actually demonstrated that we used 1.8 uh, uh, times 10 to the 18th 16-bit computations, if you will, to do a genomic uh, analytic, uh, comparative genomics type of calculation. So, yeah, this is at the exascale, but it's not at the same exascale that we're actually targeting for 2021 when we talk about being able to solve partial differential equations, if you will, um, uh, the way that we traditionally think about supercomputing. Well, it's it's uh, really an exciting accomplishment, and it's it's unbelievable. And I appreciate, I know you, you have limited time, um, but I appreciate your joining us uh, here on the show, and I want to congratulate you and the team at Oak Ridge National Lab again on the accomplishment. Thank you very much. It and was a pleasure talking to you. We're going to have to uh, take another quick break here, uh, and we'll be right back with uh, Dave Winogren, who's uh, Managing Director at Deloitte, and Taja Chapelet-Lanier, who's a technology reporter over at FedScoop, here on Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal law enforcement officer, then you know to do your job, you tap inside sources. To have a voice on policy and legislation, you join FLIOA. And when you want federal law enforcement officer news and up-to-date federal court decisions, you read FedAgent.com. If you aren't reading FedAgent.com, subscribe today. It's free. Don't let this source pass you by. I'm John Adler, president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and I approve this message. Good morning and welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500. I'm joined uh, in studio by Taja Chapelet-Lanier, who's a technology reporter at FedScoop, and Dave Winogren, who's a managing director for technology at Deloitte. Uh, thank you both for being here. And uh, you just got off the phone with Dr. Jeff Nichols, who is kind of giving a rundown of Summit, which is the new supercomputer over there. And to me, exemplary of 
one of many uh, exciting federal accomplishments uh, that are going on. And it's certainly an extreme, about as a, a extreme version or example as you could get, I guess, of IT modernization. Um, this is sort of on the fringes in the uh, in the sciences. Um, uh, but you know, we, we touched on a little bit before Dr. Nichols was on the phone that, that right now IT modernization has really become a big theme with the president's management agenda and uh, the release of some of these executive orders. And Dave, I know that this is uh, particularly relevant to you. There have been some changes that we, we talked about off, off air uh, with the use of uh, CIOs, for example, and uh, the, some changes at the Chico Council. Given your background, can you sort of give us that landscape and, uh, and what's going on there? Yeah, well, you know, there is an imperative, and it was an inspiring conversation to listen to Jeff. So, you know, I applaud it, that. It, it was. You know, quantum computing may be a little farther out for some of the other federal agencies, but it's great to see us heading in that direction. Um, so, you had FATAR a couple of years ago. Now you have an executive order around that. You have the imperative of modernizing Government Technology Act. You have the President's Management Agenda, which I would say two and a half out of three of its primary goals are all around technology, right. yep. you know, data, IT modernization, even the workforce issue is around mm -hmm. the technology workforce of the future. So, so there's a compelling reason to move. The interesting dichotomy that I see is, you know, over the course of the years, all CIOs at federal agencies are not the same. And, and some are embedded more in compliance regimes, mm. whereas other ones are sort of more focused on the strategic change initiatives that are going to make a difference. Um, sometimes what we do is rather than sort of increasing the, the, the capacity of the CIO, having the right person in the job and having them have a seat at the table, we create a whole lot of other chiefs mm -hmm. to go mm -hmm. along with it. And while there's nothing wrong with saying data matters to us, so we're going to create a chief data officer to try to push that agenda forward, at the end of the day, the difference that we're seeing in industry versus some government agencies is successful companies are making their CIO more and more crucial to the success of the company by having them be focused on how do we get digital embedded in the culture of the organization? How is the CIO involved in the strategic business change and emission results? So it doesn't just become about either compliance regimes or sort of the shiny object of the new technology solution. And I saw I saw a lot of quotes um, surrounding some of those changes. That it, it seems that sort of the guiding principle is that we want to be more like the private sector and actually give CIOs power to make decisions that that uh, that actually matter. Um, it, in sort of learning this world, uh, you know, it was new to me over the last year, but sort of learning this uh, executive agency world, it, it seems like one of the recurring problems is that agencies aren't often communicating with one another. So when you're when you're implementing um, you know, new technologies 20 years down the road, you you uh, need to, to upgrade or you need to, to communicate with another agency. You can't do that because it's, it's outdated. Um, uh, Taja, do you have a sense of whether that is sort of on, on the minds of um, uh, of the agencies right now and, and some of these successes, uh, it seems like there is uh, an increased thought that we want to be sure that agencies are communicating with each other and working together capably. Yeah, I think the thing that is necessary to remember that's incredibly basic but incredibly important is that the federal government is massive right. and there are all these different agencies and they have very different missions and they're all really busy delivering on those missions and and so talking to each other um, sometimes just falls off the to-do list mm -hmm. um, but I I do think that it is it is something that's on people's mind and to your earlier point about um, kind of continuing the modernization process, not viewing it as a we move to the cloud and then we're done type of thing. You hear this rhetoric over and over again about modernization being a relay race. 
um, and us needing to it being a continuous process, not not something that that ends once a project is over. And I think that you know making that a reality instead of a talking point is is a different thing. But the fact that it's on people's minds, the fact the fact that people are talking about it, um, the fact that it's an accepted sort of analogy to use the relay race, um, I think is meaningful in in the long term. I we keep hearing about cloud, and you reference the cloud, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe it's an overly cynical take on it, but it, it sometimes seems like the fact that we're even still talking about the cloud means that we're so far behind, right? Because you know, with with Dropbox and Google Drive and the cloud services, it's been quite a few years ago that those became used widely right and so it almost feels like you know kind of your grandmother discovering the internet type thing where it's it's just it's it, they're a little bit behind if that is the case and maybe it's not i mean are are we so far behind that that it almost feels like it would require a huge push across the government in order to catch up on cloud computing for example i mean the fact that we're still even talking about it seems concerning is that unfair <laughs> or I, I think you're spot on I, I mean you know so it's an interesting thing if you look at the sort of three spheres of activity that go into any sort of technology initiative you know people talk about people process and technology and so the pace of technology is moving really fast mm -hmm. and so you know if you don't ride some of those waves of change you get so far behind it becomes really difficult to catch up but if you look at the people sphere of activity there's sort of two things at play there one of them is you know the skills that brought you here may not be the skills that you need to have to get to the place that you're going. Mm -hmm. The world begins to look radically different. Yeah. And so, you know, we become sort of wed to the status quo. And so how willing are we to embrace the cultural change that will take us away from that which we have felt comfortable about? Because while we all love to complain about the IT systems that mm -hmm. we've had, we still hang on to them mm -hmm. far longer than private sector firms would hang on to their systems. And at the same time, if you don't get the process right, if you don't look at the opportunity to sort of optimize the process, then you end up sort of embedding what I would describe as the shiny new object on top of a really broken and outdated process. Mm -hmm. And those are the sorts of things that happen that lead us to things like huge backlogs and background investigations for security clearances and things like that, because we're using a very old process and slowly trying to adapt to new technologies to put on top of it. And so it, you're right. I mean, cloud has been around for like eight years. And so we need to just do it. We are seeing pushes in the direction now. People are starting to make progress in it. But it is a step and not the only step. Yeah. And I mean, to, to your point, it, it, it kind of goes back to, I, I keep referencing the IRS master file system, but it, it, the IRS using that outdated system is so often trotted out as this example. But to, to your point, using that example, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that you want to be sure you get right. Like you don't kind of haphazardly <laughs> move the entire tax system to the, you know, the, the latest service and then find that you've, you know, created even uh, an even greater problem. And that's why I would talk about, you know, if you look at the fact that there are thousands of these legacy systems that still exist mm -hmm. and, and they don't all need to go away. And so the, the sort of the rationalization process of what should I retire and there are things that just should be retired. They, they've been around so long, they just need to go away. They're consuming huge resources, right? Some things need to be replaced. And, and you know, if you could replace them with a commercial off-the-shelf solution so that you're not in the business of having to do the software development and refresh, that's great. Some things just need to be refreshed. I mean, we're sitting on lots of big old mainframe systems that are still written in COBOL. And, mm -hmm. you know, COBOL programmers aren't getting any younger. And you could do things like automatically refactor the code into a modern language like Java and get yourself a step up. So 
so there are some things that are like long-term plays and some things that you could do very soon, like automatically refactor the code or adopt process robotics to take the place of labor-intensive interactions mm-hmm. between systems that could get you a step ahead now. And it's precisely, I think, on the last couple uh, couple of episodes, this theme has been recurring of emergent technologies. And it seems consistently like when you're talking about blockchain and, and artificial intelligence, it always sounds very exciting. The actual applications and agencies are probably to the average person not very exciting, but still do have great rewards for, uh, you know, for efficiencies. And uh, Taja, I know that you've written recently because in uh, this slow process, and because, as you mentioned, the federal government is so big, this sort of plotting behemoth that that you know you're you're, you're trying to change, um, underscoring all of that is is data. And uh, on our last show, we were talking to the people behind the Data Act, and that was you know, speaking of agencies communicating. That was the first ever attempt to bring all federal spending data into one unified format, which was a significant undertaking. It took. I think four years before they were even able to get a full year of data spit out because there were so many pieces, you know, that it required putting together. Uh, they're now talking about expanding that to uh, to grants data, and that will inevitably expand to other types of data as well. Um, I, w- I mean, I would like to hear a little bit, I guess, about some of the data efforts that are going on because data is so it's at the heart of of all of the things, all of the challenges that we're we're talking about. And Taj, I know that you had uh, written about some of the projects going on at Treasury now. Treasury was um, instrumental in the the Data Act push, and they've got some other exciting things going on uh, that that you've been covering uh, that that are sort of examples of um, in this slow process, these teams making seemingly small but actually really impactful changes. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, I mean, to be clear, there's sort of this ongoing IT modernization push, which is like the bedrock that underpins everything. And then I sort of view it like on top of that, um, or in addition to that, there are some teams at agencies across the government that are working on just playing around with emerging technologies and seeing um, what could happen there, Um, obviously. So IT modernization being really necessary, this is sort of like a an interesting, fun thing that that some agencies are doing, but but hopefully, I mean, we'll kind of get the ball rolling on the next stage, whatever that is. Um, I think Treasury, as you mentioned, has been an interesting player here, specifically the Fiscal Service. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple offices at the Fiscal Service mm-hmm. have been doing different um, different sort of proofs of concept and pilots with emerging technologies like blockchain, very mm-hmm. buzzy yep. Um, yep. technology. <laughs> I can go more into that or. No, it's it's. I mean, blockchain is one of those, right? With with artificial intelligence, uh, that it, it just it you can't you kind of can't avoid it. But um, it, it's definitely uh, buzzy. And uh, what what are some of the actually that uh, Treasury is working on right now? Some of the because I, I've encountered it, it is difficult to keep track of the number of labs, innovation labs, and, and sort of things going on. They don't unfortunately get a lot of attention, but it's uh, kind of exciting. Yeah, well, I try to give them attention wherever I find them. But yes, it is hard to keep track of them. There are a lot of these little little teams that are working on cool stuff. Um, I think so just just one to mention, uh, the Fiscal Service Office of Financial Innovation and Transformation wrapped up a blockchain proof of concept a few months ago. Um, and what they were doing with blockchain was actually quite interesting. I think blockchain is often linked to cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. And in this mind, it's linked to you know, money, finance. Um, and obviously that's what Treasury does. And so they wanted to 
break blockchain away from money in people's minds. And so they actually used a blockchain solution to track physical assets, um, computers and cell phones that employees are issued by the fiscal service um, to see whether this would be a good solution for upgrading what is essentially now a pen and paper exercise of reconciling these physical assets mm -hmm. with um, their owner and where they happen to be at any given moment in time. Um, and they found that it, it worked really well. They are you know assessing how it moves forward from here, but that was that was an exciting project that they undertook for a few months. And it's one that I've referenced before as well because it's precisely the kind of interesting, uh, it's an unexpected application of the technology that, that unavoidably people associate right now with, with Bitcoin and, and maybe can't see how it is ultimately going to be applied. Uh, we have to take one last break and then we'll be back for the final segment of the show uh, on FedScoop on Federal News Radio 1500. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Good morning and welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Uh, this is the last segment of the show, and I'm joined here in studio by Taja Shapalay-Lanier from FedScoop and Dave Wintergren, who's uh, Managing Director for Technology at Deloitte. And uh, before the break, we were, were talking a little bit about some of the IT modernization challenges that the federal government is taking on, including... Uh, the, the move to the cloud and the trotting out of initial uh, trials of things like blockchain. Um, and another recurring theme uh, in those conversations uh, on federal technology is, is obviously one of cybersecurity because it goes hand in hand with any new development, you know, any, any new technological development representing a potentially a new threat as well. Uh, I, I've seen some numbers that indicate that the federal um, cybersecurity workforce shortage is immense. It's in the in the tens of thousands, and so it seems like that that is a, a very real uh, challenge. I know, Dave, that you've done some work over at Deloitte on cybersecurity and what agencies need to be looking at. Um, you know, because kind of the other side of the coin of modernizing. Uh, and can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that and and what some of the efforts are right now in in agencies? Yeah, absolutely. So cybersecurity truly is a national imperative. You know, the intellectual property and our security is a nation at risk. And, and you know, adversaries will take advantage of the weakest link. And so whether or not it's a government agency or private sector firm or an individual person sub, you know, succumbing to phishing or something like that, I mean, it is just should be front and center in everybody's mind. And of course, the IT modernization imperative is partially driven towards trying to build in better security than we have right now. When people use outdated systems that are no longer supported, software that's no longer being updated with security patches and those sorts of things. I think the challenge that we face, though, is that cybersecurity thinking needs to evolve to reflect the new model of how we're going to get technology done. Mm -hmm. um, things like trust and internet connections is a great way to, to improve the security around an enclave that a federal agency had. Uh, the Department of Defense, if you know, you had a dozen internet access points for three million people, yet some small civilian agency maybe had thousands of internet access points with no monitoring. But if you think about doing security in the cloud, 
I mean, if you think about doing your IT in the cloud, then the idea about how you would guard around what you have inside of your building needs to shift or else you've created knot holes. And so while the basic blocking and tackling of good cyber hygiene, you know, and all the things that we need to do to sort of get ourselves up to where we need to be today have to be augmented by thinking about how are you going to deal with security in this sort of commercialized, I get it provided by somebody else? Because otherwise... You sort of create this, I'll say, uh, self-inflicted denial of service attack where mm-hmm. the way we do security is we just sort of lock down, lock down, lock down, lock down. But instead, we need to think about the fact that people need to be able to get from any device, from any location, and get to the knowledge and other people that they need to get their jobs done. And so how can we think differently about security that will be more about trusted computing from untrusted devices rather than, you know, just locking ourselves down within our networks. And and presumably the goal being uh, security without also handicapping employees as well, uh, federal employees, where where you sort of put more and more regulations and make make it even difficult to do the work at times. Um, Absolutely. Right. I mean, if you just going to say our strategy is you can't use your personal device and you can't go to the Internet and you can't use social media. I mean, you're sort of missing the point because that's the way people live their lives and the way we live our lives become our expectation. The Wall Street Journal had an article about a year or so ago that said the most disruptive force in technology today is you and me mm-hmm. because of the expectations of how we live our lives from that mobile device or tablet that we have and how then we go to work and we want to be able to have that same sort of service, right. that same sort of capability there. Right. And there's, there's arguably even in the sort of the privacy realm as well that a lot of people hadn't perhaps considered privacy or, or data privacy or, or their data until some of the Facebook things started happening, until the questions about the iPhone security start popping up and then it's kind of, you know, hits closer to home. And it becomes like this analog around the, you know, the sort of idea about we're slow to move the cloud because maybe we want personal control. Mm-hmm. So we become like server mm-hmm. huggers. And, and there's the analog for security too. I mean, you know, we imagine the security is better if it's our stuff. Right. And and that may not be true. And it may be like anecdote based rather than actually data driven, right? That you may find a commercial cloud provider who is far more secure than your current mm-hmm. in house solution, but you feel better about the one that you feel like you have more personal control over. Right. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, with that in mind, uh, Taja, also uh, feel free to jump in. I, um, uh, we, we alluded to, again, the executive orders and the, the president's management agenda. With all of these moving pieces, it seems like uh, in discussions recently, there's um, sort of a general sense that we'll, we'll finally be able to address potentially things that we've been talking about for decades, like sort of the the mines of paper type problems in the federal government. Um, Dave, Taj, either of you, are there are there particular um, I guess opportunities that you see right now? Uh, like, what are the what are the big challenges that that through these you know, where does it go from talk to, you know, here are the actual improvements that we may actually be able to see as a result of this kind of focus on IT modernization um, uh, across the federal government? Well, I'll, I'll go first. So the opportunities abound. And, and we have to sort of get over ourselves and be willing to move. I mean, you know, to take a step into the cloud is good. But if we imagine all the cloud work has to be on-premise, private cloud, then we really are missing opportunities to gain mm-hmm. the innovations that take place in the big commercial clouds. Mm-hmm. And and you see this sort of over and over again. So I would say there's like two thoughts, and I know it's one that Taj has written a lot about, mm-hmm. is, you know, innovation, we need more. And so how will you get more innovation? And I feel like today some agencies are far more hampered by how they're asking for things 
than by who they're asking. Because mm-hmm. there's lots of great innovation going on both in Silicon Valley startups and to your point earlier in the conversation about companies like IBM and Watson. And so how we ask for things, are we asking for things in a way that are allowing industry to bring their best stuff? So we need more innovation and we need acquisition to work better for us. And so you know, do you do things that encourage these new ideas to come in? Do you use mm-hmm. statements of objectives rather than rigid statements of work? Do you value alternative proposals? Are you contracting for outcomes rather than for like pieces? And are you doing things that's going to help get the best solution to come? Because it's, you know, the sort of height of hubris to think that we alone have the best answer. Mm -hmm. And the best answers usually come when we get that strategic partnership between, I'll say, the best minds in government and the best minds in industry working together. One one of the areas, uh, I believe, Taji, you wrote about this as well. One one of the areas where there's kind of been a challenge in that we talk about emergent technologies, the ones that always get all the airtime seem to be AI, blockchain, virtual reality, but drones are also part of that. And I know, Taja, you had written on the fact that, I mean, drones have, have exploded both uh, for, for consumers and then also obviously the, what that means for the federal government. But in, in the expanded use of drones, I mean, the government hasn't necessarily been helpful in uh, allowing for their use. And I know that you've you've covered that a little bit. That's It's an area where... Um, the, the FAA in there has sort of uh, cracked down on, on the use of drones. Um, and uh, Dave, I know that you had, you had mentioned um, the process robotics as, as one that uh, will, will reap a lot of benefits in the near term. That's not actually one is can you go into what that means? Is that, is that the application of artificial intelligence to these problems or what, what is actual? So if you look at sort of the continuum, I would put at one end of the spectrum, artificial intelligence, and then backing up from their machine learning process, okay. robotics a little bit gotcha. more towards the other end. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is a today thing that you could be doing. And so when we talk about process robotics, we're not talking about like, you know, robots on assembly lines. Right. We're talking about the fact that, that right now, and numbers of federal agencies are doing this. I think there's like probably 14 agencies. Uh, NASA has has done great work with process robotics. And so it really is, you know, this idea about we have still have really labor intensive processes mm-hmm. where we take information from one system and have to put it mm-hmm. in another system or reconcile between our ERP and our financial feeder systems. And all those things could be done by bots that are that are working at a much faster rate than, the, than a human could and free up the human, the scarce civil service resources that we have at agencies to work on the, the mission priority task. And so Process robotics is a great way to look at how can you get offload the work that could be done by machines for you so that the humans at your organization can take care of the things that require humans. And we've got about three or four minutes left. I, I know that um, it, we'd also discussed a little bit, uh, as you alluded to, improving the access to innovation. You, you touched on that a little bit. And uh, um, you know, accessing the innovations like the process robotics, how do you actually get to that? And you argue that in in order for the federal government to best be able to operate and best be able to benefit from these improvements, that there will also have to be some changes to the way we actually get those technologies um, uh, in the in the acquisitions process, for example. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Yeah, well, I, again, you know, I mean, there's there's ways that you buy printers and there's ways that you buy like AI and, and there's ways that you get really smart people to help you solve your cybersecurity dilemmas. And those different pro- approaches require different types of contracting mm-hmm. approaches. And oftentimes we, we fall in the habit of the lowest common denominator about a, an acquisition approach that works well, I'll say, for buying printers. And so we use that 
and then we're for other things, and then we're not really delighted with the results, and, and there's a reason for that. And th- this right? is the idea you have here as uh, capabilities as a service, which is right. not something. I mean, if you think about it, cloud is a classic case of consumption-based buying, right? We, we buy what we want, and we buy an outcome. And, and that's like so expandable beyond just cloud, beyond just seat management contracts, like when the Navy did the Navy Marine Corps intranet a couple of decades ago. I mean, you can actually buy an outcome for an HR support function. Mm-hmm. So this sort of combination of, you know, Fortune 500 companies don't build their own payroll systems. Right. They go to providers that have commercial solutions and they use them that are experts in the field. So this combination of commercial off-the-shelf solutions that are available to help you do the things that many people need to do, and then partnering with industry providers that can help you take care of the unique things that you have in your organization and maybe buy the outcome and let them be the ones to bear the capital expense of the equipment and bear the system development costs and let them give you what you need you know, in terms of mission results. And that, that's also been an area where I guess they've, they've looked at beyond sort of the external, how you're getting it, also the internal. Um, there's been a big push and a big look at implementing shared services, uh, which is also consistent with uh, um, a lot of uh, private sector best practices. And I think there, there was kind of one other thing I wanted to, to touch on, and, and you, you've touched on it briefly uh, as well, is... You know, in all the talk of technology, et cetera, you kind of got at the fact that that people are what are uh, underscoring that. And uh, you you had referenced a little bit that uh, a culture change um, is also a big component of what would what would be necessary at uh, in federal agencies as we work on IT modernization. Yeah. And you could do a whole next hour on that. But I will just say, you know, if you want to get IT modernization done well, I, like my four pieces of advice is have a plan because mm-hmm. everything doesn't need to be retired. Some things continue to work, but what to retire, what to replace, what to refresh. Move with speed because technology modernization initiatives and adoption of new technology works best when it works quickly mm-hmm. and stays ahead of the pace of technology. Involve the customer throughout the process and communicate relentlessly because you can sort of do this in pieces and you can do this in bites and you can begin to move the needle and then you can celebrate successes and move on well i uh, we're actually coming up now on the uh, on the end of the program so i do want to take uh, just another second here to thank our guests taja chapelet lanier who's technology reporter at FedScoop, uh, dave winnergren who's a managing director uh, for technology at deloitte and uh, our guest earlier in the show dr jeff nichols the associate laboratory director for the oakridge national laboratories computing and computational sciences department and thank you uh, to those of you who tuned in uh, have a wonderful weekend 